You're listening to Diffuse Tap with Kenny Estes and Isla Krem. This week, we're chatting with Daniel Pianco, Managing Director at private equity firm Achieve Partners. He's thought more about the future of work than anyone we've ever met and is going to share some of his great gems with us here today. Enjoy. Welcome back, everyone. Nice to see you this morning. Hopefully you had a chance to meet some interesting folks in the breakout room. Uh, what's on tap? So for those of you who have been here, this is going to look pretty familiar. Um, we're going to just briefly talk about Diffuse Tap and Diffuse, what we actually do. And then we're going to have uh, an expert speaker of the day, Mr. Pianco, who we saw attend, talk about the future of work. And then we're going to do two more rounds of breakout rooms, kind of similar to what you just did chance to network in small groups, have a chance to, in between breakout rooms, ask some more questions of the speaker. Why do we do that? Well, that's what Diffuse Tap is. 45 minutes of our time here together is networking in small groups. 15s focus on insights. And then we do also kind of spontaneously started happening and we leaned into it. We have started doing in-person events, which are kind of like sister events. I don't know. Yesterday was in Chicago, interestingly enough. Um, but we do do them all over. So if you know anybody that would be interested in hosting a Diffuse Tap event, tapping a little bit of the network, let us know. Diffuse, what we do is we we incubate alternative funds. So we work with managers, um, we work with people, we work with LPs to find strategies that are compelling on one dimension or another. Um, at the moment, we're working with one called Aaron Capital, which does uh, public sector enti- entity litigation finance. It's a very niche area inside of Litfin. And then we recently launched Diffuse Digital 30, which is the first digital asset index fund um, of the top 30 coins, market cap weighted, all the things you want. So if there's any interest in any of those, do let us know. Now today's speaker, and Daniel, I'm terrible with introductions, so I'm gonna let you do your own, but is Daniel Pianco with the Chief Partners. Um, you're probably muted, but do you wanna briefly talk about your background and what you're up to, Daniel? Sure. Uh, I've spent the last 20 years or so investing in the future of learning and earning. Uh, our uh, fund is called the Chief Partners. Uh, between that and predecessor funds, we have um, about six or seven hundred million under management. Uh, and excited to talk to you about uh, what what's going to happen next for and just high level. Um, I think besides the uh, uh, um, ecological systems that we have to fix. Uh, probably the second most important thing we have to fix as a society is how we learn and earn uh, and make economic opportunity available for everybody. So happy to talk about that today. We're, we're quite excited for this one. Every every time we have a new speaker, I'm always wondering which one is going to have the cleanest the cleanest transcript. I think this one is going to be uh, going to be straight up the line for that. Mm-hmm. All right, maybe I'll kick off with a first question and. Just to set the stage, what is um what does really future of work mean um, at the moment in the venture world? There's been a lot of buzz around it since mm-hmm. the mid of last year. What what does it mean? How how do we separate it out? What are the verticals? Yeah, and first, first of all, I see a lot of people in the chat. I'm happy to answer chats, but it's hard to do both at the same time. So I apologize, and I uh, if you can highlight anything. We'll pull. Yes, we'll definitely pull okay. questions. Um, so first of all, we we like to say the future of work is now, right? Lots of theoretical think tankers out there saying, oh, the future of work's going to happen in one day. And, but um, actually, uh, we're seeing all the trends uh, happening today and driving significant uh, shifts in the marketplace. And COVID is, is merely sort of accelerating that. Um, you know, I think the biggest problem for the venture capital community is the future of work means something different to everybody. And so when uh, I hear some VCs say future of work, they're out there trying to figure out how to let more people in an enterprise use computers on a distributed basis. 
Well, that's kind of the future of work, but I don't think that's what a lot of people think of when they think of the future of work. Um, I tr we try to take a bit of a more narrow definition, which is how do you get people a job? What is the ecosystem to sort of get people good jobs and then stay in those good jobs over the period of their lifetime? Um, and that's, that's really what we think of as sort of the future of work. It's not uh, some of the, you know, um, you know it's, it's marketplaces, it's technology, uh, but it's really focused on that specific problem. Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. And that specific problem and more generally, um, I've heard rumors that there's been some changes in how people go about things over the last year. How, what trends have you been seeing? How's that I don't know if anybody heard of COVID, but it's, it's been an issue. Um, so we have, we have a lot of companies that work closely with employers to place people in jobs. And what's interesting is there are a couple of big themes happening. Um, first of all, there are a lot of jobs out there. Even in the depths of the recession, you still had millions of jobs openings. At least I'm going to talk about the U.S. We talk globally, but I'm just going to focus on the U.S. just because it's easier to, to, to and narrowly focus. But, you know, today there are 9 million unfilled jobs, right? So we're, we're in an environment where we have massive need for labor, but almost all of that labor is uh, trained labor. Um, it's not 19th century or even 20th, early 20th century labor. It's people who know how to code. It's people who know how to uh, work. It's almost 80 or 90% of those jobs are jobs you need training for either in healthcare or technology. And so the first thing that we should think about with COVID is um, the, it accelerated trends towards people working at a distance in technology. And that has created or continued to drive a large need, a, a dramatic need for skilled talent in very specific areas. Now to sort of what I think you really meant, which is suddenly everyone started working from home. I think that, you know, we were already moving towards a little bit more of a, a people working remotely. I mean, remote work wasn't really a thing, um, but, you know, people like WeWork and others were already starting to pick up on this trend, if you're familiar with industrial. So this trend of people working more uh, uh, diffusely, uh, to use the, uh, your, your term. Uh, so I, I just, I like to, I like to be where I am, you know, when in Rome, so I'll use diffuse. So when people started working diffusely or remotely, we suddenly saw that accelerate with COVID. Um, and sort of the real, and we saw that in schools. So let's just take schools for a minute. Um, we went from nobody, effectively zero people going to online school for K-12 to effectively everybody going to online school for K-12. The fascinating statistic is that today, about 25% of parents want to send their kids to online school for K-12. And so let's just assume that roughly mirrors the working world, right? Um, we have suddenly given uh, the ability to so many people to work remotely. But I'm in New York City today. It's packed. New York is back. Subways are packed. Streets are packed. I think that people are fundamentally humanoid animals, and they are social animals. And so we're going to be coming back and figuring out new ways to reorganize um, and so I think work's going to change less than we think, except for that roughly 25% who really embrace it. Mm. And that's interesting because we're seeing a lot of the larger banks just doing a no questions asked mass call for people to come back to work again. Um, what are you seeing in terms of upskilling um, all of those uh, individuals who are just not at the level where they could kind of keep up with the, the future uh, skill sets that are required. Um, how, how should how do companies train them these days, and uh, and what kinds of businesses have sprung out of that that are maybe worth investing into if you're a GP or an LP? Yeah. So first of all, this is probably the biggest problem with the social contract in America, in Europe, and and globally, which is too many 25, 30 year olds 
don't have the skills, the education they received did not train them to get that good first job. Um, and if you don't get that good first job, more than 50% of people don't have a good job after about five years. So this is, even if you've done everything right, this is the classic barista at Starbucks. Um, part of the reason for this is between about you know, 1995 and about 2015, um, most large companies stopped doing training programs. So if you wanted to be a salesperson, uh, you went to work for an insurance company, you got a sales job, they trained you. And then um, and those programs between the uh, 2000, 2008 and, and this recession have, have really, frankly, gone away. And so what we see is sort of the single biggest uh, opportunity in the future of work is reestablishing that connection, whether you're a tech platform or partnering with um, employers directly to create that funnel of smart people who don't know how to do certain things, marrying those two together, and then getting that person a job. So uh, at, its, at its most extreme example, which is kind of where we spend most of our time, um, it's we buy companies in skill gap areas, say cybersecurity, then we start training large numbers of people. We, we try to uh, invest in areas where we need it. We can uh, train at least a thousand people a year. Um, and then we place them in jobs. Now behind that is a whole ecosystem of training programs, of certification, online learning. Um, uh, then once you're in, how you train people. So we had one company that was placing uh, people in insurance, recent college graduates to work in uh, insurance call centers. In order to work in an insurance call center, you need a certification. We gave them that certification, then they got the job. Um, during COVID, they went to hiring zero people because they couldn't onboard people at a distance. Today, they're hiring just as many people. They figured out how to onboard at a distance and or back to in person. Um, and so we're seeing sort of this like massive reward of, of how this works. But the fundamental, the fundamental uh, job to be done is, is creating this pipeline to employment. That's great. We're going to pick up some of the questions here from the chat. Uh, the first one, uh, this was not in our prep call because it's a relatively new study about the effects of the four-hour work week and the ends of a experiment or the results of an experiment over the last few years. What are your thoughts on that? Is that legitimate? Do you see the world going in that direction? So, so I remember when uh, I had Keith Ferrazzi come in, in, at my Stanford Business School class and tell us that that was going to be a thing. I, I'm skeptical. Uh, I mean, I think Europe's even pushing it with how focused they are. I, I think that you're going to see um, a, a increase. I mean, what, what you are seeing is, uh, and, and this, I started a podcast, um, you know, and one of the, the guys, I spoke to a bunch of people who were doing podcasting ahead of time. And they were telling me, all you need is a thousand listeners. We'll pay you $100 a year and you can have a middle class lifestyle, <laughs> right? And, and I thought about that for a second. And that's like the perfect four-hour gig. So like for some people who can generate, who can join the creator economy and do other things, that's real. But for most people, that's not real. Most people are going to be punching the clock. So I think what we're seeing is, and this is, again, part of the social problem in America, we're seeing people who are able to use their brain, um, join the creator economy, work less and benefit more. Um, I, it's just great. I don't know if you saw the New York Times article that the guy who's the second uh, uh, most popular person on TikTok now is a, is a Senegalese uh, migrant to Italy who quit his factory job and now makes more money, you know, makes 10 times as much money as a TikTok star. So, but that's a sample size of one. You still have a lot of Senegalese migrants who are not, not in that state. So I think 
the four hour work week is a luxury, um, but hopefully more and more people will join it as we, uh, as the creator economy continues to grow. Interesting. And, and that kind of pops in another question here, just looking at um, what are the kinds of either technologies or business models or innovations that have come out of this specifically that, that investors should keep an eye on. I know that it's not kind of a technology first um, process necessarily. It's very much offline because that's where a lot of the, the money still sits in this. But uh, I remember during your prep call, you mentioned something really clever uh, that the average school district has a thousand apps. Um, yeah. Obviously, that's, a, that's an interesting data point. What are some of these other tidbits people need to know about when they're considering investing in some of these ed tech startups, et cetera? Yeah, first of all, this is a massive market, right? We spend $80 billion on ed tech products in the US alone, about $200 billion globally, and it's growing at close to 20% a year. So, um, and that doesn't even include the future of work kind of products like um, uh, companies that will let you type in your skills or upload your LinkedIn profile and then immediately tell you what, you, what things you need to do to get that next job. So um, these are massive markets. The, the, the area we're most excited about are ways to personalize learning. So uh, think of it if you're in a big classroom and a teacher talks to you, uh, sage on a stage model, as we say, um, that's bad. Good is um, very specific learning that's catered to you based on how you're doing on tests. So like the med one of the medical schools we run, you answer all your uh, uh, test questions on an iPad or on phone, and we can tell who is doing well in what subjects, and then we can personalize learning to them and find out if someone's missing big topics and things like that. So any type of personalized learning is, is really, I think, if you're going to invest in tech, probably the single most important thing. So uh, first off, my last question, I think I referred to it as the four-hour work week. I was not plugging Timothy Ferris. That was the four-day work week. Um, but yes. The, and another question from Vartika here. A bit on the cynical side, is this just a rebranding? We've been doing reskilling as boomer, as people you have, you know, learn new tech skills and they want to expand back out. Is this, this future of work just another term for that? And how does that differ from what reskilling has been in the past? So, so first of all, I'm a cynical New Yorker. So I approach everything with a high level of cynicism. And I agree with your cynicism. That's why we that's why I started saying the future of work is now. I think the future of work, I'm not gonna occur, I'm not gonna say bull SH blank T because it kind of doesn't matter, right? Even if you're a venture capitalist, you're solving for problems in the next three to five to seven. And, and those problems are long-term secular trends that we've been seeing for a long time. So I do think this is a little bit of a rebranding. We only adopted the terminology because how popular it was being coming in Silicon Valley. So um, and, and it sort of started to create some resonance. So uh, we actually don't talk a lot about the future of work and what we do um, because we've been in it and, and take the same level of cynicism that the uh, question asker had. <laughs> Beautiful. And it kind of continuing on that, on that road of cynicism, um, even though there's a massive potential in some of these companies, you mentioned that we haven't really seen that many decathons and massive, massive exit in this space. It's, it's been kind of moderate and modest. What do you, what do you, why do you think that is? Is that a lack of understanding of the space or just a massive fragmentation of the market? Um, where do you think that yeah. comes from? Yeah, so the, the stat that's going to blow your mind is roughly 6% of the American economy is spent on education and training, but exactly 0.1% of the publicly traded companies on the US stock exchange, New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ, are education related. So, 60 times the spend for, uh, or one sixtieth of the spend relative to the broader economy. 
Um, why is this? Uh, we're of the belief that we have a very, very fragmented market. While the overall market is huge, right? EdTech is 80 billion alone, and depending on how you count it, the, the real answer is, you know, there are only 4,000 universities in this country, 4,000 school districts in this country, and probably, you know, 1,000 or 2,000 large, large-scale employers. Um, and so if you think about selling into that network, even if you sell a $100,000 product into that network, you can only create a four or $500 million team. So uh, there are very, very few areas where you can get sort of the DECA unicorn, unicorn type company outcomes, which I think over time will significantly and adversely impact, you know, people investing in the future of work. Um, now, that being said, there are some kind of real breakouts, uh, like a Udemy, like a masterclass, like some of these other like guild education, um, where either they figured out a way to sell to large numbers of consumers, like OutSchool. Uh, or they figured out how to get the enterprise to use money they're already spending in a different way, like guild. And I think those, you got to tap into those large scenes of spend in order to get to that unicorn type status. That's great. We'll do another audience question. We'll skim along the surface of politics. Let's not go too far down this rabbit hole. Um, right now, you're seeing a lot of labor shortage, as it were, with, uh, especially with the unemployment uh, benefits being so high, there's a chance that turns into just a universal basic income in perpetuity. How do you think that that's affecting what you're working on and people's desire to to relearn or to to plug into your programs and universities? Just generally, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, I mean, um, so I think the answer is both and, right? I mean, I think the conservatives are saying, hey, the problem is you're paying people to sit at home, um, and the liberals are saying there isn't any training. And I think the answer is both, right? And so um, I think it really depends also on what types of jobs, right? The U.S. economy and the global economy are very diverse, right? If, if I have a choice between making $15 an hour sitting at home or $15 an hour working at a fast food restaurant, I will choose to sit at home just like everybody else. Um, I, I think the real kind of political question that, no, sorry, the societal question rather than the political question is how do you get that person who's working at McDonald's a clear path to a better job. Let me just say one important thing. I'm not, I can't do a show of hands because of the nature of this discussion, but how many people when they were 18 worked at McDonald's or an equivalent type of job? And when I ask that question for people in their 40s, 50s, et cetera, almost everybody raises their hand. When you ask that question today of 20 year olds, almost none of them raise. And the answer is very simple. Because the jobs like the those fast food jobs, the retail jobs, the home health jobs, have the Walmart jobs have turned from being, you know, summer part-time temporary employment to long-term employment. And that's one of the fundamental problems. Walmart never envisioned that their associates would stay with them for 20 years. So when they don't have health care, they don't have health care because they, they, for many, many years, their labor force didn't actually need it. That's changing as these job, and you're seeing companies like Amazon say, we're going to pay for our employees to get upskilled. And that's kind of the mind shift we've got to get into. Gotcha. Love it. All right. Well, I think we're going to do our first or second breakout room. Um, so briefly, a couple housekeeping items. It's a networking session. Please keep pitching to a minimum. No way holding. Please try to help. Along those lines, we also don't send out the full participant list. Um, so if you find somebody you want to connect with, swap details there, or we, you can join the Telegram group, which is uh, fairly lively with folks who like to help out, especially when it comes to introductions. 
Uh, Ms. Cran, do you want to speak to breakout rooms and topics? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll pop you into rooms now. You'll be some four or five people in each. Um, Daniel will be, if you're lucky, you'll get Daniel in your room so you can grill him a little bit further. Um, we'll spend about 10 minutes in each room. And the topic for the first one is what are some of the future work investment opportunities that you've seen, either action, that you passed on them, but that seemed particularly attractive to you? We'll pop into rooms now. We'll see you back here in exactly 10 minutes. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. Hopefully you had a good chat. We're going to do one more question for our speaker du jour, Mr. Pianco. Um, and what are we going to do? So uh, this is one of our prep questions we'll give you, uh, Daniel. Outside of technology innovation, um, what are some of the pretty cool features or, or um, ideas that you've seen that might make a big impact? Uh, as an example, income sharing I've seen. Uh, what are your just general thoughts there? Yeah, sure. I think uh, so. Can I, there, there, I'll take two. One is a technology. One is a financing mechanism. Um, first, in terms of technology, uh, the, the the shift in not just personalized learning, but all sorts of like chatbots for chatbots uh, to facilitate getting jobs and and, and education and training. Um, we have a company that you know um, uh, uses natural language processing to evaluate uh, discussion board quality and grade it on behalf of faculty. We're just seeing an explosion of um, tech, uh, of, of AI-driven, um, making the world easier for people in and around uh, the learning and earning economy. And, and I think that's you know not not just the learning, the front-end learning, like uh, but but all the back-end systems as well. So so that's one thing. Um, the other thing which you sort of highlighted is I think we're going to see the way we pay for education and training to change. Fundamentally, if you have to pay out of pocket for training, um, you're probably in the wrong business. Uh, so if someone's asking you to pay for a coding bootcamp, well, then why don't you go to a coding bootcamp or, where, where they pay you while you're learning? Um, because they will place you in a job afterwards. And so I think historic, if you think about, I'm going to, again, give the U.S. context, but this applies more or less globally. Um, historically, the government has taken on the funding uh, of, of education, right? So uh, federally funded government loans. And most countries have some version of this or direct pay for education. Um, and, and, but over time, uh, last few years, uh, that, that has really shifted to the consumer for a variety of reasons. So that a lot of you see stories about like student debt and the like, um, and in Europe, the inability to fund uh, additional education. Um, and so I think the next step in this evolution was then uh, income-based payment plans. So if you make money, you pay more, which are income share agreements or income-based payment plans. And then sort of the, the next evolution is going to be the employer pay model where um, employers know that they need, you know, 50 Python developers in Phoenix, Arizona, and they're going to just pay for it. Um, and I think that that's the holy ground. Um, that's where everyone wants to get to, which is we're not uh, the, 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 the ultimate um, source of payment is the employer. Mm. Hmm. That's actually really fascinating. Huh. All right, uh, something to think about. But I think we need to do one more round of breakout rooms. Isla, did you want to uh, kick them off? Yeah, absolutely. So again, groups of four or five in each room. And the questions for, question for this round is, um, if you were going to start anything in future work in terms of you know, if you're running your own company, what is something that you think is absolutely needed and you think the market um, will be craving at this point in time. So I'm opening all the rooms now and we'll see you back here in 10 minutes.
Welcome back, everyone. Um, we are going to do a quick wrap-up because uh, apparently we keep going over and not getting to it, and then we'll drop one more question to uh, Mr. Pianco. So um, up next, Telegram group, keep the conversation going. You can pop in there, introduce yourself. You can ask questions about the future of work. Uh, the community is pretty good and engaged. Um, we are launching a new, the second diffuse fund, um, which is exciting, uh, potentially tomorrow. So we'll, you'll see more about that. Uh, and we're gonna have an event to talk about that, but it's effectively a market neutral high yield um, DeFi staking strategy. And then what we do as a reminder, we'll launch alternative funds. So we're having digital assets, we work in a lot of different areas. So if you find anybody that has a really compelling <laughs> strategy and an expertise to allow them to execute on it, we can probably help them turn it into an honest-to-goodness fund. But that said, Mr. Daniel, we have two questions. One, um, diversity as it relates to how the technology scene is changing. Um, specifically, the question is around, I think, neurodiverse community, which I gather to be autistic people and people who have disabilities. How does the, How is the current trends impacting their lives? Um, so, so first of all, by the way, the diffuse tech, uh, the diffuse uh, DeFi fund seems really interesting for anybody who has to take a look at it. I recommend you take a look at it. Um, uh, so, just full disclosure, plug for Kenny's stuff, uh, but 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 well earned. So, first of all, I have a brother on the spectrum, so I'm very passionate about the issues around neurodiversity and tech. Um, I I am. Um, cautiously optimistic. So first of all, most people who are in tech, not us, I should say different. Um, there are many people in tech who are neurodiverse already. We just don't call them neurodiverse. <laughs> <laughs> so many of met a lot of coders. Um, but look, that's, that's, you know, I think one of the great things about technology and some of these other, um, the innovations around the future work where it's acceptable to work from home and to work in different ways. Um, your work product becomes more important than your than your user interface. And, you know, historically, you know, until we got to the bro culture, um, many people in tech did not have a user interface. I would say that diversity in tech is um, uh, even, even more important, not just neurodiversity, but across a broad spectrum of things. You know, the, the, the percentage of, you can't tell me that, um, you know, uh, only, you know, I think less than 10% of people who work at, at big tech firms are diverse on any major metric. So, um, you know, it, it, it's a really important issue. Neurodiversity is just one piece of it uh, specific to that. I think there's a lot of innovation going on. Um, you know, my personally, uh, again, very passionate about it and seeing, but mostly on the nonprofit side where uh, neurodiverse teams are doing like gaming, um, you know, uh, um, when you when you uh, check if a software package is running correctly, I mean, kind of very basic level <laughs> stuff. But over time, um, I think that that's going to be uh, QCing uh, tech. Um, but I, I think over time, you're going to see more acceptance for diverse minds and mindsets and and individuals across the entire ecosystem, driven by some of the things like the ability to work. That's great. Really appreciate it. And I think that takes us to time. Look at that right at the minute. Um, so we're going to do a quick wrap up, which really is just thank you. Thank you, Daniel, for your time here and giving, uh, sharing some of your insights, hard, hard earned insights here. Um, and everybody for showing up. Uh, Isla, did I miss any of the sound bites I was supposed to touch on? No, I think we, we got everything down. So I'll see you all next week. And uh, just keep your calendars a little bit open in case you're in New York in early August. And that's coming up. We had a really fun 
uh, Chicago to Fuse Tap yesterday. So we'll we'll see how New York turns out. In the meantime, uh, have a good rest of your week. Thanks, everybody. Thank have you, everybody. Week. Thank you very much, Daniel. Have a good one. You've been listening to Diffuse Tap with Isla Krem and Kenny Estes. If you enjoyed these conversations, join us for the live version every Wednesday-ish at 10 a.m. Central. In addition to the fireside chat, the live event features three rounds of networking in small groups with alternative fund GPs, LPs, and supporters from around the world. Log on to www.diffusefunds.com to register yourself now.